5AA Nights with Matthew Pantelis. Let's talk science as we do on a Tuesday night. And uh, joining me from Science in Public, Neil Byrne. Hi, Neil. How are you? Hi, Matt. How are you? All right. Thank you. Now, thanks for stepping in. I understand Sarah was doing this and uh, you've picked up the baton. So well done, you. Um, she, might, she might be asleep. Uh, very good. Uh, pandas... Um, Let's talk about pandas, because we've got a couple of useless ones in Adelaide that have let the team down for the last 10 or probably more years now, 12, 15, whatever it's been. Well, you're being too kind to them. Yes, I am. I know. The the habitat (laughs) is too perfect. Is that what it is? Well, that's that's what this first paper doesn't really relate to. What are your pandas' names, by the way? Uh, Funi is the female, and Wang Wang. um, Well, Funi and Wang Wang... You know, they've got probably got a very nice uh, place to live down they, there. They do. At the zoo. Yeah, the other, um, the other animals are, are absolutely jealous of their enclosure, I can tell you that. Well, I can understand that, but we've got to look after our, um, um, our panda friends. Mm. And, um, but what, what the, what's interesting about the panda is, is firstly, and I, I hadn't actually realised this, but they're recovering in the wild in China. Mm that China has done a fantastic job, actually, of um, conserving pandas and, and other, other uh, wildlife in China. And so numbers are increasing and they're off the um, uh, endangered list and back onto the, uh, on the vulnerable list. So not perfect, but getting better. Yeah. But what this paper found out was that if you make things too good for the pandas, mm-hmm. um, that... Um, they don't tend to spread out and rebuild their populations. Oh. It's kind of, uh, they can have too much of a good thing. Or it's a life in the Goldilocks zone where it yeah. needs to be uh, not too small, not too little, but just right. And they said that about, so basically um, that for the best outcome for conservation, they're, they're suggesting that about 80% of that, if, if more than 80% of the habitat is like perfect for them, mm. they're Eden, if you like, um, that you know, they just stick there and uh, don't don't spread out and don't they're not challenged right. to, to to spread out and recover. So, what was interesting about that is many of the you know, there's a wonderful phrase called uh, charismatic megafauna, mm-hmm. by which we mean all of the big animals that people like. So we get excited about lions and tigers and whales and dolphins. We don't get excited about saving obscure species of fly, for example. <laughs> um, although no one's out there campaigning for the conservation of leeches. No. Right? Yeah. But we, 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 we'll, we'll go to the walls in defence of the panda and the lions and such like. Yeah, yeah. Many of those endangered animals live in very fragmented landscapes where there's um, uh, interaction with, interacting with humans and such like. And uh, this work is saying that Actually, a little bit of uh, disruption in the landscape might actually encourage them to disperse and travel further, might result in them um, mating more um, widely so they don't get so inbred, uh, and actually leading to a more um, uh, robust population. So clearly we need to move them next to the tiger enclosure (laughs) and give give them a bit of a shock. Give them a bit of a Give them a bit of a shake. Yeah. Take away some of the privileges. Yes. Um, <laughs> Less bamboo. No, I don't think. I really don't think I should suggest that we uh. do anything to the to the pandas at. Uh, I like in the Adelaide. Idea. Otherwise, I'll be. I mean, 
I'm from Melbourne, so I'm not allowed to visit Adelaide anyway. No, not at the moment. This could lead to a long-term ban. Mm. Bring your bring I, bring your boys when you when you are allowed to travel, and they can check out the pandas at least. Oh, and and them in to check out the pandas. Yeah, you got to do that. Now, let's talk about the big cat. Talking of tigers, in fact, uh, how did cats and tigers get their stripes? It's a big question. It's a big question, and apparently, it's a question that philosoph- uh, scientists and philosophers have been thinking about for a long time. Um, where do the uh, how do the stripes arise, mm. both in domestic animals and in in the large animals? And it turns out that Charles Darwin um, spent some time trying to think about this and came up with um, with a few ideas. Um, but also Turing thought about this topic. So Turing mm. was the what the father of modern computing, yeah. arguably. Um, the guy with he the apple. Was... Sorry? The guy with the apple, the half-eaten apple. Yeah. Do you know about the apple? No, no I don't know about uh, the there apple. Was, there was a half-eaten apple found by his bedside after he, he died. Oh. And uh, it's and Apple denies this, the company, but the half-eaten apple symbol is said to be a nod to Turing. Oh, excellent. Hmm. I, I didn't know that. There that you go. Is... That is wonderful, especially if it's true. Yeah, especially if it's true, um, I agree. The um, So Turing was one of the people who was responsible for breaking um, uh, the German Enigma Navy Code during the Second World War, which allowed uh, the Allied forces to work out, basically to, to uh, track, uh, uh, interpret um, German radio signals, work out where the German submarines were, and get uh, troops and supplies across the Atlantic Ocean mm. to Europe to help turn the course of the war. So um, an amazing guy, really smart guy, mathematician, mm. pioneer of computing, and he apparently also theorised about how this might happen. And he sort of argued that perhaps there were, in the, in the, in the cells, there might be um, inhibitors and activators that might diffuse through the cells at different rates, and that would... Uh, they make these kinds of uh, almost random, spontaneous patterns emerge. Mm. And these researchers have found out that that is essentially what happens. Um, Turing didn't know about what the activators or inhibitors might be, but now, 70 years later, um, he's worked, it's been shown to be the case. Uh, we've researchers uh, from America, Stanford and others, identifying... Uh, the genes are responsible, that one of the genes responsible. So that helps explain how these patterns emerge firstly in the, um, are programmed into the skin cells and then emerge as the hair follicles grow. And they don't know that it's, it's how it works in other animals, mm. but pretty good chance. Yeah, that's amazing. Start to explain the mystery of uh, stripes and spots. How about that? Unreal. Um, SARS and COVID-like viruses may jump to humans thousands of times a year, according to new research. So this was really intriguing. Um, yes, the headline in the, in the uh, journal Science story they've written on this, SARS-like viruses might jump from animals to people hundreds of thousands of times a year. Goodness. Um, study pinpoints regions in Asia that could spark the next coronavirus pandemic. So this goes to the 
underlying idea that we know that uh, viruses move from animals into humans. Mm. Uh, we've talked about this before, how in Australia we know that Hendra virus uh, moved from bats into horses and, and killed some vets. Mm. But it's hard to catch. It doesn't spread easily. So you get, you know, you get a case of it and uh, it killed some horses. Sometimes it will kill the vet who inspects the horses, yeah. but it doesn't spread from there. So it's a kind of dead end, mm. which is fortunate. And it we is. know there are other viruses in the region that are doing that. A virus called Nipah in um, Malaysia and Southeast Asia, also flowing from bats, often through pigs. Mm. They have larger outbreaks of that. That's, that's more common. But what these researchers did, and, and, and one of them is a... We're both based in Singapore, but one of them used to work at the CSIRO's Animal Health Lab in Geelong. and played a big role in trying to understand the mystery of SARS. Um, they um, actually took samples from um, a few thousand uh, people in uh, Southeast Asia looking for antibodies against SARS-related coronaviruses and found that there was quite a diverse range of, of, virus, of, of, of antibodies present and they think that what's quite often happening, happening is that there is actually a lot of contact between people and bats in Southeast Asia in one way or the other. Mm. I mean, it could happen in all sorts of ways. The Hendra virus spread from, horses, from bats to horses probably when a pregnant mare was browsing underneath a Moreton Bay fig tree mm. and got, um, got contaminated with uh, bat urine. Mm. So... Mm ways these things can happen um, and so they, they suggested that lots of lots of little outbreaks of coronaviruses happen that might, that might happen on some remote area infect a couple of people doesn't spread um, and then of course sometimes as most likely happened in uh, in Wuhan um, it's a form of it's a coronavirus um, that can spread and that then takes off yeah. So that's a really intriguing idea, um, and their map that they've published helps will help people to start to think about you know what are the hot spots where these things might happen, mm -hmm. uh, where the viruses are present, where the wildlife is present, and when there's quite close interaction with with people living in rural settings. Yeah. So that's intriguing. Yes, indeed, and uh, I guess something for for governments, I suppose, to be concerned about and. And to plan for, but uh, certainly yeah, very interesting that it could be happening that often. That's unreal. Um, well, it's a, it's a reflection that it's, there were a bunch of people before COVID happened mm. who were trying to understand what was happening with, with SARS and similar viruses. And we need a lot more of that. Yeah, indeed. See what's happening with these things. Yeah. Uh, the first tourist mission went into space the other day. and oh, all sorry, went... can, I, yeah. can I just pick up one other aspect of that very quickly that's interesting? Yeah. The other thing that's come up is that uh, researchers have reported that um, people are eating less wildlife, that people in certain parts of Asia with awareness of COVID and the pandemic are 24% less likely to consume wildlife products in the future. Okay. So one of the reasons, one of the ways... Of, you know, the issues both for wildlife conservation, going mm. back to our first story, and for, for disease risk is don't eat wild animals. Yes. Or bits of wild animals in Chinese medicine yes. uh, because of the 
the harm that's doing to you know, rhinoceros in Africa. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually good to hear that people are starting to listen to that and a demand for wildlife products is dropping. That's excellent. That is good. The first tourist mission into space, it went well, three days. They came down, landed safely, splashed down, and uh, anyone can go for 50 mil, apparently. Yes, I'm not quite sure how you buy a ticket, but I'm told that that is essentially the, uh, is essentially the price um, for the next team going up. Wow. And what's really interesting about this is, as I understand it, this crew of four, all tourists, no professional mm. pilot, so fully automa- automated mission. Yep. They were just presumably sitting there and crossing their fingers. Mm. Um, were um, actually have fl- flew higher than anyone has since Apollo. That's because amazing. Because the, the um, International Space Station is in a relatively low orbit, and so yeah, they went if, if we're fair way out. We debated a couple of weeks ago whether yes. you know, the people who had popped up in, in Richard uh, Branson's flight and uh, and Bezos's uh, mm. to origin, whether they'd ever really been in space. You know, it was a straight up and straight down. Mm. These guys really did go into space. Yeah. So apparently you can go yourself. Um, three business people are paying $55 million a piece wow. for the next mission um, early next year. And um, Russia is also planning to take an actor and a film director up to do some filming in yes. space. And um, so it's only a matter of time for, you know, like a little retirement flight for you, perhaps, Matthew. I'd, I'd be into that. Would you go? I certainly would. I'd love it. Yeah, of course. I think, I think you know, at this stage, going to the moon or particularly going to Mars is mm. seriously dangerous. But... Um, Popping up into space, having a look at the world from the Earth from, from space, What's, going around a few times, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. What's the diff? Why do you think it's seriously dangerous? I mean, if you're going up, well, no, does it matter? Going to Mars. Oh, if to Mars, going further, yeah. Going to yeah, Mars. Yeah. Uh, we, there's so much we don't know about uh, you know, long-term survival sure. or long mission in space. Um, I was talking with a scientist a few weeks ago who was saying that our cells, not, you know, we depend on touch. You know, and when you when there's no gravity around, you, your touch is is affected. Mm. But the individual, our individual cells also need to touch each other, and they get confused. Mm. So, long missions, maybe not. But yeah, interesting. Just going up for a couple of days, yeah, that yeah, would be that would be cool. Absolutely, that would be amazing. Yeah, it would. And just finally, eating disorder, or sorry, eating disorders. Maybe talking disorders too. About uh, a million Australians affected. That's that's quite high. Yeah. So I was doing some work helping the Inside Out Foundation in um, sorry, Inside Out Institute up in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, they launched a, a, a national uh, research strategy uh, with support from federal government today. And when I was preparing that, I had no idea that eating disorders were such a large problem. But yeah, at least a million of us are affected by eating disorders. And probably only about 200,000 of us uh, receive the treatment we really need. Now, that's particularly important for the uh, most dangerous of the eating disorders, so things like um, particularly anorexia, anorexia nervosa uh, and forms of bulimia. And, and it turns out that eating disorders are more deadly than other mental health disorders, that they're the leading psychiatric cause of death, either directly or through suicide. And it turns out that we 
good ideas about what we should do, but we don't have a really good understanding on how wide it's spread, what the best options are to uh, educate, prevent, diagnose, and get people into, into treatment programs that are going to save lives, mm. but also save the huge impact that eating disorders have, not just on individuals, but on their families and the communities around them. So, yes, that's something that um, I think we're going to hear a lot more about in the next few years mm. as they start to develop strategies to, to help people. For okay. exa- example, Jana, Jana Pittman um, is said very publicly um, that when she was an athlete, when she was competing in the Olympics, yeah. uh, she suffered from bulimia and covered it up and didn't really understand the seriousness of the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and now later in life, she's a doctor as well as appearing in uh, in the FAS show yes. um, and has realised um, how much she could have done earlier yeah. and, and now is now working with Inside Out to uh, reduce the risk for people in the future. Which is excellent. Oh, good on you, Neil. Um, great stories. Thank you so much tonight. And um, that was all very, very interesting. I learned a few things on the way, which is always what it's about. So thank you for that. And we'll, we'll talk next time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Good talking. Cheers. Bye-bye. Neil Byrne there, Science in Public, a media organisation that uh, trains up people who work in science as to how to deal with the media and everything else. 5AA Nights with Matthew Pantelis.